Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Saturday, January 7th, 2006, at the Society's 35th Critical Care Congress here in San Francisco, California. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with Gordon Bernard, MD, one of seven prominent critical care leaders, presenting during the plenary sessions here at Congress. Dr. Bernard is the Melinda Owen Bass Professor of Pulmonary Medicine, Assistant Vice Chancellor for Research, and the Director of the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. He also serves as the ArdsNet Steering Committee Chairman and is here to talk with us about his plenary presentations, ArdsNet, Successes and Challenges of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's First Critical Care Research Network. Thank you for being with us today, Gordon. Thank you. I thought we'd begin by hearing a little bit about your personal history. I know you've been involved in this area for a very long time, and uh, if you perhaps could tell us how you initially became interested and perhaps some of the changes bringing us up to the creation of ArdsNet. Well, my interest in uh, acute lung injury goes back at least 26 or 27 years uh, when, as a fellow, I studied uh, uh, acute lung injury and pulmonary edema due to vascular pressures uh, in the sheep model. And I learned a lot about physiology uh, in the course of that work and began to uh, test various agents in the ARDS sheep model that made sense for taking taking it to the bedside. And uh, I migrated over the next uh, 10 years to doing uh, primarily clinical research, which has been where I've stayed since then. And um, I first conducted multicenter clinical trials as an investigator-initiated uh, grantee in the NIH, and only later did the, uh, the ARDSnet uh, become established by NHLBI. And so what we're, what we're really focusing in on is this concept that, of VILI, that patients who develop the acute respiratory distress syndrome may develop worsening lung injury by being on the ventilator. And the question is, how much is the pulmonary injury exacerbated by being on the ventilator, and are there ways to lessen that degree of injury? Is that a succinct summary yeah, of that? That is. Uh, and it's interesting. The term uh, ventilator lung was applied to ARDS probably something in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 years ago when ventilators were first being used to keep people alive in, uh, in critical illness. And uh, that fell by the wayside. The idea was, was initially that the only time you ever saw an injured lung was a patient on a ventilator, so maybe that ventilator was causing the injury. And then later everyone said, well, maybe it's just that this is the first time we've been able to keep people alive long enough to actually see the evolution of this pulmonary edema, this non-cardiac pulmonary edema. Uh, but the term is sort of coming back now uh, with the notion of uh, stretch and volume trauma. I know that a couple of the other controversies, and I, I know you're... Uh 
a prominent leader in this area, was even defining ARDS. And I'm always discussing this with the residents to make sure because it can often be very confusing, of, uh, especially in a research setting, trying to get the proper people into the trials uh, of defining ARDS. Yes. Actually, uh, when I first started getting into clinical research, one of my greatest fears that you'd wake up in the middle of the night with was that you'd complete a study, you'd found something that really worked and saved lives, but yet uh, you you would have it not accepted because the, the general physician populace didn't believe the definition of ARDS met their definition. I was wondering if you could share with the members of SCCM a little bit about the history of how the ARDSnet was uh, created um, and perhaps when it was created. I believe it was in the early 90s, but if you could talk a little bit about the history, I think that would be great. Certainly. Uh, Actually, I think it goes back a little bit before the actual announcement of the RFA for uh, application to become, uh, to form the ARDSnet. Uh, I had uh, put in an investigator-initiated grant application to study ibuprofen and sepsis, a study that was published in the New England Journal in the late 80s. Uh, It was NIH-sponsored and um, ran into a host of sort of administrative issues trying to launch such a large undertaking from an investigator-initiated perspective. And uh, the lung division at the NIH recognized that they were becoming interested in acute lung injury and intensive care. So how could they facilitate studies in critical care and not have every one of them be a one-off and invent the, you know, blaze the trail? Uh, so they, they put this RFA out for sites willing to uh, collaborate uh, in, in large-scale trials, and the ARDSnet was launched in 1994. And um, if you could talk a little bit about how the initial study was designed, since I know that there have been many, many articles discussing the controversy behind that, and, and I guess if you could do it all over again, would you do it differently? Or if you've not addressed that in some of your papers, I know. Well, the short answer is uh, the initial study, the ARMA trial, was designed with great difficulty. <laughs> uh, what happened was that we um, sat around and debated various and sundry what we might call novel interventions, surfactant, for example, uh, drugs that inhibit the immune system, the inflammatory response. And we would gravitate to one or more of those interventions as our trial, as our first trial. And then when we began to write the protocol, we began to argue about what the ventilator strategy should be underneath. Uh, Should we control it? Should it just be whatever anyone uses? And we finally decided that uh, it, it, it didn't make any sense for us to study a new drug or, or a, a, a new technique uh, until we've at least studied the basic mechanical ventilation strategy that keeps people alive when they have ARDS. So that's how we gravitated to the, the ARMA trial. So why bother studying secondary interventions for ARDS until you've first got a best possible ventilatory approach? Right. And the other thing about it is even if we couldn't necessarily say it was best possible, because that takes many iterations, uh, we could at least say that it was a standardization of what we do and that we could con- we could make sure that it was applied evenly across the different arms in trials going forward and across different sites in the study. It reminds me of the, uh, the new AHA guidelines for ACLS where we're focusing back on just uh, basic life support co- compressions <laughs> rather than the drugs involved, but yes. uh, that's a side issue. Um, and then uh, as I was trained in fellowship, you want to let the data speak for itself And um, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the various societies, how those were chosen and and getting patients recruited into the trial? I know it was a very large trial. That must have been very difficult. Yes, actually, the the way the RFA was structured 
any site in the country could apply uh, to be one of the 10 sites, one of the 10 original sites. And then there was a, a separate competition for the coordinating center. Uh, there were something in the neighborhood of 40 or 45 applicants for the sites and three or four applicants for the coordinating center. So then that was just an, a review committee, pretty typical standard NIH review committee made the final selections. Recruiting patients into the trial, that must have been a, a great challenge. In all clinical research, it's a great challenge. There's uh, been very few times in my lifetime, either in my own experience or what I've seen others trying to conduct clinical research, that you uh, have no trouble with recruitment. It's almost always a fundamental problem with recruitment. And uh, there are probably many reasons for that, but uh, not the least of which is that you are trying to, to uh, pull together a fairly homogeneous population with not so much experimental noise in this population so you can see a signal. and. That's not the way we practice. Everybody we see in practice in the ICU is, is, has ALI, no problem. There are dozens of them. They're everywhere. But then when you start screening out one factor or another that might complicate the ability to interpret the results of the study, uh, you lose a lot of potential recruits. And then again, to get back to the point I was discussing before, you want to let the data speak for itself, and the data came out positive and, uh, again, showing a significant decrease in mortality and time on the ventilator. Um, although there were some counterintuitive results that the lower tidal volume group had more initial hypoxemia. But again, would you rather be uh, alive and a little hypoxic in the beginning or, or dead? And I was wondering if you could uh, talk uh, a little bit about the aftermath of the publication of this. And uh, I know that there have been multiple articles discussing this. I, I know that Dr. Rubenfeld and his group uh, published an article talking about how there was only a, a small percentage that actually do it even at an ARDSnet center. And I was wondering if you could share your personal perspective on some of those issues. Sure. Um, we, uh, in designing the protocol, uh, set out to look mainly at tidal volume. So we want to standardize everything else and then only compare two different levels of tidal volume. And um, we picked 12 as a sort of control group uh, because we felt that was the most common tidal volume, 12 milliliters per kilogram uh, predicted body weight was the most common uh, tidal volume. If you adjust that for actual body weight, it's somewhere around 10 and a half milliliters per kilogram. Uh, the comparator was low tidal volume, or so-called low tidal volume. Actually, I, I, I always remind people it's really normal tidal volume. <laughs> and so there's nothing strange about it. It's, it's what we are all breathing right now as you and I are talking. And so uh, the six mil per kilogram was the compar comparator. Uh, in, in the end, uh, six mils per kilogram does cause the patient to breathe faster, and we, don't, we, we have been trained to not like to see rapid respirations. Even if you're not uh, a pulmonologist or a critical care specialist, when you walk by the bedside of somebody breathing 40 times a minute, it strikes a fear in your heart. And, uh, and so you, that takes some getting used to, but it's a fully supported 40 breaths per minute. So they're not in any distress. Now, there's an occasional patient whose CO2 will rise, and there may be some sedation required to tolerate the rise in CO2. But that's really actually surprisingly uncommon. Why do you feel, A, that there is still so much controversy surrounding the particular study and that it's been so difficult to get it implemented? And I remember hearing uh, Dr. Pronovost at last year's Congress discuss, potentially, the NIH focusing the, uh, another ARDS net study on implementation. And again, I've, I've brought this up in, in multiple of my podcasts, that the, the, the psychology of getting physicians to change when there's some data behind it 
is tough, and it appears to be particularly tough surrounding this. It's not a new drug. Mm-hmm. It's it's dialing down a dial on a ventilator. Right. Uh, that is a very peculiar phenomenon, and, and I think it is um, somewhat, maybe not unique, but uh, characteristic of critical care physicians. You know, um, I can actually remember when, in, when I was a resident and our critical care unit was established. We didn't have one until the, until the, mid, uh, the mid-70s and uh, in the in, in, uh, University of Kentucky where I did my residency. We were flying by the seat of our pants. There, was, there were no rules. There were no studies. And in fact, we went the next 20 years without any substantial positive studies to guide what we were doing. I, I, you know, for lack of a better term, a, a certain cowboy mentality exists in critical care. It's one of the things I think that makes it fun for a lot of us. Uh, but now that things are being developed that actually work, uh, activated protein C, low tidal volume, and I'd like to believe we'll find some other things. Maybe the FACT trial will show us something about uh, reducing or increasing circulating volume as a way to maintain life in a better way, uh, that, that we, we're going to have to sort of pay attention, and, and we're going to have to abide by some rules and guidelines uh, to, to show that we, we're approaching medicine in a standardized, organized way. And that just takes a culture change, I think. And so when the tidal volume uh, trial came about, the results came out, um, I think there were uh, the, the, main, the main issue is one of dose. We compared essentially two doses of tidal volume. Uh, everyone knows there are many, many other doses that could have been tested. We couldn't test them all. Uh, as, it, as it was, testing the two was a, was a real challenge. And so we come away with feeling like we know one dose is particularly better than the, the other, strikingly better. The 6 mil per kilogram dose is strikingly better than the 12. But what we can't say with any certainty is that 8 milliliters might not be better or two might be better, or 15 might be better. But from what I remember discussing this with Dr. Mathé and reading also uh, some of the controversies in the literature, is that the number of patients you need to recruit to answer those types of more of a continuous question is, is overwhelming, right? Well, it's massive. So we, we powered the study uh, to compare 6 and 12 at 100, I mean 1,000 patients. So uh, we we were able to detect, we, were, we powered the study to be able to detect a 10% difference in mortality, if, there, if that existed, between 6 mils and 12 mils. If uh, you narrow the difference between 6 and 12, let's say you make it 8 and 12 or 10 and 12, you can also imagine that any difference that you might see would be less. So yes, indeed, the, the uh, number of patients required to see that kind of difference might be in the thousands and thousands of patients, certainly not feasible. I know one of the other controversies that's been surrounding some of these uh, recent trials has been the stopping early because there either is or isn't efficacy. And I, I believe the Arsenet trial was one of the ones that was stopped early, and I know that there's been some controversy around that concept. And I was wondering, as, a, as one of our leaders, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think when you're studying a new experimental agent like, let's say, activated protein C or any other drug for a serious disease, that you should do everything you can to not stop early because there will always be questions that you want to ask of the subset, and you'll also want to have as much confidence as you can in the result. So the the onus is on us is to push as far as we can, as long as we can, knowing that at that at some point, if you're seeing positive results, you're going to brush up against the ethical issue of can you keep randomizing to placebo. And that's one of the reasons why investigators are kept blinded in clinical trials. There are many, but one of them is so that you don't get clouded by ethical issues that you're not even confident are true ethical issues. Uh, for example, in the activated protein C trial, <clears throat> 
we uh, we stopped early in that trial as well, um, and the the, the p value is point zero 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 seven, uh, and so. Uh, uh, the, the, the DSMB, I, I didn't make the decision to stop. The Data and Safety Monitoring Board made that decision. And uh, they felt like they just couldn't go any longer randomizing to placebo. But I didn't have to carry, as an investigator, I didn't have to carry that baggage until the announcement was made the study was stopped because I would have had difficulty going to the bedside and recruiting patients. And it sounds like, though, and again, I, it was a point you were making, is that, for example, in the uh, Prowess trial, the stopping early led to some problems unforeseen problems later on trying to figure out the precise role of the agent. And I guess it's at a fundamental level of designing the study, incorporating when to stop when there is efficacy. Is that the idea? That is the idea. Um, there's a, what, what is generally used is something called the O'Brien Fleming stopping rule. And this is a group sequential analysis method that sets the p-value to stop so small that you're very unlikely to stop until you get to the end of the proposed trial. But every now and then, uh, you hit. And so we did with low tidal volume as well. And so the study stopped early. It would have been nice to have had the whole thousand patients in the, in the group to look at subsets more carefully and, and to further convince people that this was the right way to go. And, uh, and with prowess, the problem was you ended up having the FDA indication fundamentally for a subset that wasn't planned initially in the original study. Is that, that's is that a, correct? That's exactly right. You know, in, in all of the sepsis trials that had come before prowess, there was always a subset you could find that was positive, even though the overall trial was negative. And in every case, uh, the FDA and everyone else said, well, that's an interesting subset. It's a hypothesis-generating uh, finding, and maybe you could take that subset forward in a later study and, and, and explore, explore what's happening in that subset. Well, in the prowess trial, we sort of had the opposite. We had a, a, the overall trial was positive, and there was a subset found where there was little effect or no effect. And under normal circumstances, you say, well, that's an interesting hypothesis. Maybe we want to test that further. But instead, the, the, the reaction was that was sort of the result. That was, that was the main result that everyone focused on, or at least many people focused on. But in fact, the, the entire trial was, that it was positive. Uh, the FDA insisted on focusing their attention on a, on a particularly positive subset, the high Apache score subset. And, and that's fine. And I think that's where the drug is being used today. And, and that makes some sense. So one of the themes, again, uh, that I learned in my fellowship, and again, reemphasized talking with someone like you is the two areas are a that the design of these large trials is incredibly important just absolutely paramount and that the, the recruitment and doing the nuts and bolts of critical care research is, is very very challenging with with ethical issues with getting consent I know that was a huge issue uh, at where I trained as a fellow as well yes uh, the mechanics are immense uh, it's 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 not uh, something for the meek to undertake. <laughs> uh, it, it takes a, a lot of fortitude, both physical, emotional, and, uh, and, and just to be able to maintain your, your uh, enthusiasm for the duration. These studies take years. I was wondering if we could sort of conclude by letting you share with the members of SCCM some of your thoughts about the future of where the ARDSnet is going as a, an entity and some of the future trials that are on the horizon. We, we will probably revisit mechanical ventilation at, at some point in the future, but it's not a high priority for us. Uh, we feel that the ARDSnet protocol has mortality down in the, in the 23 to 24 percent range for, for the first 28 days of, of ALI, and, and that's as low as any 
study that you can pull out of literature of any size. There's some small studies here and there where you might see a lower mortality, but, but among large studies, it's way low compared to what we've seen before. And so uh, I don't think we'll revisit uh, the ventilator unless we decide to, on, to undertake an uh, oscillator ventilator study uh, where we would go to the ultimate in low tidal volumes, tiny, tiny tidal volumes and very, very rapid rates. Uh, there's a lot of reason to believe that would be a good way to go, but we don't think the technology and the, the infrastructure is there right at the moment. And the phase two, we would like to see a phase two type study done first. Uh, you know, something in the neighborhood of 50 or 100 patients truly randomized in a standard way, a good solid study to see what kinds of feasibility issues there are, uh, what signals we should look for aside from mortality and, and so forth. So that's, that's the ventilator um, uh, section of our thinking, I guess. <clears throat> the, other, um, the other area would be um, in uh, other kinds of support. One of the things that the ARDSnet uh, has done not by design, but just by consensus over time, is that we have gravitated to studying things that we think no one else will study, mainly industry will not study. And, uh, and so that our, we have some novel agents we might want to try in ARDS, but if we know that they're going to be studied by industry, then we're not going to use taxpayer dollars to, to conduct those studies. We'll use the taxpayer dollars to, do, to study things that industry will never study, like tidal volume. And one of those other uh, areas is nutrition in the ARDS patient. And so we're still discussing it and it hasn't been uh, decided yet, but as we go into the next phase of ARDSnet, the first phase lasted 10 years, we recompeted, and now there's a, a, a second phase uh, for the next seven years of a new group of ARDSnet investigators. Large over, there's a large overlap with the first group, but uh, there are some new members. And we're discussing uh, the possibility of doing a nutrition trial where we're going to look at some of the ingredients that might be included in nutrition and have a direct impact on the inflammatory response, uh, like omega-3 fatty acids, and, uh, and also about the timing of, of feeding, whether you should aggressively force feed patients early in ARDS or whether we should say, well, maybe Mother Nature knows it best and that eat, not eating when you're critically ill is a good thing, uh, that perhaps you're feeding the fire at, at some point by force feeding patients that are, that are ill. I mean, we, we use the analogy that when you get sick, you don't eat and, and uh, you know, you might try to force yourself to eat a little bit, but you won't get very far. <laughs> well, I guess we're, uh, we're sort of out of time. I wanted to personally thank you for being with us today. We've been speaking with Dr. Gordon Bernard. Gordon Bernard is the Director of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University, and he is the Chairman of the ARDSnet Steering Committee, and will be giving a plenary lecture on ARDSnet Successes and Challenges of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's First Critical Care Research Network at the 35th Critical Care Congress here in San Francisco, California. This concludes our podcast for Saturday, January 7, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. 
Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.